0: Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, a podcast where we delve into anything related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. As always, we're your hosts. Uh, my name is Adam Jaziorski, and I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpunt. Hello again, Adam. Hello again. Uh, How's it going? Not too bad. Uh, at time of recording, I guess... The holidays have begun, at least at my end. Um, so four
1: days before Christmas. Yeah. Four days
0: before Christmas.
1: Not many boxes in the advent calendar left.
0: No, nope. no, nope. and uh, you know, present some presents under the tree, and excitement is building. And uh, oh yes, that excitement is for recording yet another episode before uh, the end of the year.
1: Use it. That's right. <laughs> we'll feed off that energy and produce something. Not only that go on to something new.
0: Yep. And I, I kind of just decided uh, last time to wrap up the arc looking at the small picture where we were examining individual paleo indicators and in some detail. Um, and we did, I think, seven episodes altogether. Um, and obviously, there are many more paleo indicators out there. So there might be a sequel arc in the future. But for now, after a few months of talking about, you know, very specific aspects of paleo in detail. Uh, I thought it was a good idea to change things up and pull right back out to a big picture perspective and spend our next arc uh, looking at a series of topics that at first might seem relatively simple, but uh, are quite nuanced or have some depth when you really start digging into them. them. And so thinking of an arc called Conceptual Rabbit Holes.
1: That should be fun. Yeah, I think that that It was time, as we said, uh, for everyone. We'll come back to some methods. But uh, those episodes, they do get a little encyclopedic. And these ones, you can wax poetic a little bit more. And there's not necessarily going to be a right answer or a list of things to take away. But uh, an interesting opportunity to dive into some of these topics. So how should we start?
0: I thought, uh, you know, doing some digging into the question of, what exactly is being reconstructed in a paleolimnological reconstruction would kind of, you know, it seems simple, but there's a real can of worms there, Um, Mm -hmm. especially when you're trying to match up the paleolimnological record with uh, any direct monitoring records that you may have and reconciling the large disparities uh, that can exist between those two measurements of what ostensibly is the same thing.
1: This ties back into a question we had way back when. I think we mentioned that someone had sent us the, the only message we've ever received in the email box. Yeah. Um, and at the time, we mentioned that it would be a great place to, to jump off. And this is, this is a little bit broader than just the topic of, I think it was Ben's question, uh, but uh, it fits into it nicely.
0: Yeah, because I think we alluded to this in a previous episode, but here we can dig into it a little bit more. Um, because mm-hmm. it is a pretty broad topic, because on just a very coarse level, um, one of the huge benefits of paleolimnology and the sediment archive is that you're dealing with integrated seasonal samples, um, or or at least seasonal samples, I mean. Um, in some cases, mm-hmm. you know, you don't you're not necessarily or, in fact, rarely going to get annual resolution, especially at the top of the core of the whole lake versus when you're dealing with a monitoring record. You're looking at a snapshot of what they were able to capture most of the time, what they were able to capture on a particular day of sampling.
1: Yeah. Big difference. Yeah. And, and yeah, the the, 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 in that very moment, you know, the, the, if you're taking a nettoe or a water sample or measuring with a probe, it is in that very section, very second. And in that very location in the lake that that sample is being taken. So, you know, of a huge amount of specificity, uh, but it is very short duration compared to something more integrated like the mud.
0: Yeah. And then compounding on that, um, not everything preserves um, or not everything is preserved in the sediments, I mean. And conversely, not everything that does preserve in the sediments is necessarily captured in di- direct monitoring measurements. And so um, just using you know cadadassar, my own kind of pale indicator choice as an example, um, most of the time, monitoring programs are focused on the water column. So even if you're, so for example, say you're doing zooplankton net hauls, um, you're not going to capture very much of the littoral community um, without considerable effort. Um, and in the vast majority, in many many sediment records of cladocerans, uh, the littoral community will be quite prominent uh, in the reconstructed community. So just that just gives you just like a real snapshot of the real difference, even though that same indicator group, you know, you'll eventually be interested in reconciling potentially if you've gotten two sets of data from the same lake, I want to see how they match up. But really you're looking at two very distinct components of that indicator group, depending on how you oh, measure them. Yeah.
1: For sure. Yeah, exactly. And if you think like more interested in not interested, more familiar in my end with diatoms, this is an, a huge, algal class phylum whatever it is that has different taxa we often think of diatoms as being spring bloomers you hear that all the time because there's this they need this um, stratific or uh, tur- turbulence in the water they often have a pulse of silica which they need at that time but there's huge seasonal differences in the taxa of one group let alone all the other groups so even for one that preserves really really well, when you would observe them actually in the lake from going out and taking a sample is completely variable and you would see all of them in the sediment record. And that doesn't even take into account the potential for these big blooming events uh, that could occur that you might go and sample versus the sediment samples, which are averaged over this longer time period. So they could be, and then on the same time, or the other hand, those blooms could be completely missed by monitoring if you're not out there. We, on the we right day. When, when, yeah, when Liz came on and, and chatted about uh, cyano blooms, uh, whereas you may be able to capture those integrated into the sediment samples. Yeah,
0: but if you miss... Yeah, and those are hugely important ecological events within the lake um, in terms of, you know, say you have this huge bloom and it is one that... Um, is releasing neurotoxins, a huge impact on the ecology of the lake. Yet, depending on the day that you're there, or if you're on a monthly, weekly, or maybe just once in the summer, you have a single data point, you may miss it entirely. Um, and what impact that has on your morning record when you're then comparing it with the fully integrated one um, mm. can be quite profound. Yeah, for sure. Um. Is also, the so that's just two nets, examples,
1: right? yeah. That's yep. just two examples of time. You would, I'm sure, and we maybe we'll go into a few others. Uh, for any indicator or any species or any group found in the lake, you're, you're going to be able to find similar disparities between the monitoring record and the uh, the, the the sediment record,
0: absolutely. And you know, like, let's get pretty negative here, and we'll just Radloff, all the problems are like <laughs> reasons why this doesn't work. Maybe as our first segment. Sure, um, yeah, why not? Because it's it's a fairly long list. Because um, you have dating aspects uh, I mentioned earlier. You're very rarely going to have annual resolution in a um, in a sediment core, unless you're working with varb systems to tie to some sort of annual monitoring program. Um, the monitoring records likely don't go far back as you would like, depending on what you're particularly interested. What you're interested interested in. Um, your best case scenario, at least in the regions that I've worked in, is you know, a fantastic monitoring record would go back forty to fifty years. And so, in that case, in eastern North America, you are already after the peak of acid deposition, for example. Um, so you're going to be at best, you'd have like 40, to 50 years of a monitoring record. Um, and then also maybe some specific historical events that you could use as markers when you're interpreting your course So things like, you know, the initial land clearance or the catchment or building of of a dam somewhere within the catchment and things like that. So a couple of isolated events tied to some monitoring record.
1: Oh, yeah. I, you know, there may be lots of more anecdotal or, or point records, uh, but they're not going to be consistent throughout those 40 or 50 years. What? Well, Even over a five-year monitoring period, you could have five, 10, depending on how many samples are being taken a year, a hundred different analysts who go and take those samples and then analyze those samples. So there's huge variation across the methodology in a monitoring perspective um, at at any record uh, that has to be taken into account, which compared to the sediment record, where you know it's it's usually going to be the same person or the same research group working on a on a core.
0: Yeah, um, there's the whole aspect of different locations within the lake. Um, most of the time, when you're sampling a core, you know you're going to the uh, the Deep, deepest spot or deepest basin of the lake, um, and counting on sediment focusing to um, kind of integrate your record that's like one of the reasons that you do that, uh, depending on the monitoring record, you might be trying to integrate a couple of different locations in some cases if they're monitor different spots around the lake or or maybe they're doing a single integrated sample as well um, so that is a thing to keep in mind um you have the potential cases of taphonomy in longer records or um, or depending on the conditions within the lakes in terms of is there anything going on within the lake that is causing your indicator to dissolve or disappear in some cases?
1: Or well, the nature of the indicator. We didn't get to an episode on pigments. I think it was probably the next one in the uh, small picture, so maybe we'll Small picture 2 we'll start off there. And that's just the nature of the chemistry of chemical indicators uh, is that they change in the sediments and there's breakdown. So measuring chlorophyll A in the water column versus uh, reconstruct or measuring chlorophyll A in the sediments is not the same thing.
0: There is also the aspect, and we, I believe you mentioned this when we're talking about chronomins, um, n- Many paleo reconstructions have an element of the unknown, uh, where there can be uncertainties regarding the source of some of the indicators in terms of the relationship between the chronomid larvae, for example, preserved in your sediment core versus what the actual adults may be like if you're doing any sort of um, broader sampling program. Mm-hmm. Um and then also kind of compounding on that is the relationship between the sedimentary assemblages and the extant communities is not necessarily exact ex- exact so for example um, you do a net haul of cladocera you know you pick out one daphnia but that daphnia will have molted several times through its life cycle so it's not a one to one relationship between the organism and what is left behind in the sediments and then when you go from taxa to taxa so bosmina versus daphnia, the number of malts and the pace between malts and the number of generations within a year uh, can all vary.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned about chironomids and uh, I think we've talked about cr- uh, chrysophyte cysts before in the same way. And they kind of fit into both of those last two, right? Because they're a, an insisting body arresting stage of an algae, but there's also not a clear linkage between what the uh, the algal individual and the morphology of the cyst is in order to link them. So they kind of tie those two ideas together at the same time.
0: Oh man. So I think, uh, Ooh,
1: no wonder we don't <laughs> do this all the time. That's hard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> paleolimnology is kind of like, as a concept here is a little bit on the ropes. I think it's like, that's a long list of reasons why it won't work.
1: Yep. But I think we can get around some
0: of them all right so with that long list of reasons why the modern record and the paleo record um don't match up it really begs the question of so what does this matter i guess it
1: really depends what is it you're trying to do with these records? It would be my first question, my first answer to that. If if I'm, if someone was playing devil's say, well, I guess Adam is playing devil's advocate here, or if someone were asking that at a conference or a student was asking or something like that, uh, that would be, you never should answer a question with a question, should you? But uh, to turn it around and say, well, it depends. What is it you're trying to do with these different records? Are you trying to? one-for-one one match this sampling event to this exact piece of the sedimentary record, uh, or is it more integrative about understanding the environment? And and if that's the case, then there are things we can do with that. There's value to having any data at all, because for most sites, we don't know anything about anything about them, let alone uh, have good monitoring records. So there's great value in attempting and starting to think about what you can say with, with these things, given all those considerations. Yeah.
0: And I have no problem answering a question with a question. And so in <laughs> terms of the whole so so what, I think a pretty good counter is what else are you going to do? Um, yeah. You know, like limited data is better than no data. Um, but these sort of incomplete records... Um, is all that there is going to be because you, barring a time machine, you know, there's no way to go back. And, you know, we've mentioned many times in terms of pH, like even at the time in 1850, nobody was measuring the pH of lakes because pH as a concept had not yet been invented. Um, so you need to need to take advantage of these indirect archives. Um, and basically do the best you can and interpret as much as you can from limited data and knowing and being mindful of these limitations um really provides the means to tailor your questions to get around them
1: for sure and that's the key right you just need to be sure that your that you're taking all of these ideas into account that you're being mindful of all of those limitations, because it really can be fairly straightforward or fairly, um, I don't want to say easy. Uh, uh and it, it, there's a tendency to want to over interpret relationships that you see, you, you, whether you whether they're not there and you just see them, whether uh, it's noise in the data set, it's easy to fall into that trap of trying to make things line up when maybe they just can't line up. There's just not the similarities in the samples, in the nature of how the samples were collected, the environments that are being reconstructed, the indicators that you're talking about, all those things, In order to do that and and so you have to be careful not to try because you will see and oftentimes it's very easy to see uh relationships that don't exist
0: yeah and i think a key thing to keep in mind or something that really stuck with me is a very common metaphor that i heard throughout my graduate training from john my supervisor was the whole you know the sediment archive Slice, take your slices as you go down back in time, and you're going back in time, and it's very much the pages of a book. Um, And so that sucks. Does he say
1: that? Does
0: he say that? Is that something he said before? I may have heard him say that once or twice. Okay. Or one or two million times. It's a great amount. But then compounding that, um, I think it was at a conference, and I heard uh, Dave Schindler say, you know, and he was being – probably a little bit disparaging of paleo at the time in terms of leaning into its limitations. It seems like paleo is great and yes, you're flipping through the pages of a book. But the problem is there's only one letter on each page <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that you're trying to reconstruct uh, or that you're able to reconstruct. And so, you know, there's a lot missing from, from the record. And, you know, if you know that, that's fine. Um, and it really comes down to being aware of the question and being aware of the paleo, indica- the paleo indicator you're working with. So honing in on the taxa that are really responsive to the variable of interest, for example, and being able to go, yes, there's changes in here, in this side of the stratigraphy, and they're subtle. I don't really know very much about the environmental requirements of any of these taxa but this particular guy like for example Asterionella raulsi is very very pH sensitive and it was non-existent then dominant then non-existent so you know all kind of indications just on one organism is leaning pretty heavily to drastic pH changes within that lake
1: mm-hmm. exactly
0: before you start looking at the other individual letters elsewhere on other pages but that one letter is a really important letter example.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's this big capital letter that's in a different font than uh, than than the other pages, the other words that might be on the page. So there's uh, understanding the different components of the ecosystem, and and really in the end, both whether whether it's modern sampling or paleo, really do under require an understanding of the fundamentals of the environment that you are studying. So both of them are grounded in modern limnology. Paleolimnology is not a science separate from understanding the the connections occurring in the trophic web, uh, in the ecosystem, in the the connections between different levels of the ecosystem. Uh, It's fundamentally tied to that. And if you know what those are, then you can use things like the, the response of very specific taxa, even if you're not familiar with what's going on with the others or, or can't pinpoint their drivers uh, as clearly in order to say something really valuable, that gets around the fact that mm, couldn't measure pH in 1850.
0: Yeah. And the whole question of pH is one of the main points in its favor that this limited data can work. Um, especially when you're dealing with things like acidification where the changes are very very drastic and it all comes down to tailoring the paleo indicator to the question and the whole idea that it doesn't matter how you know much you want to model it the diatoms are not going to tell you very much about calcium changes even if you have a really good calibration set with a great range because the diatoms themselves don't care very much about the calcium in the water and the changes in the calcium are not as much uh, in relative terms as the changes as the pH. So if you're talking about a change of a couple pH units, that's really, you know, a 10,000-fold change in, like, four pH units, which is a much easier, stronger signal to detect in the the sediments than, you know, a change of, you know, a 50% reduction from 2 milligrams or 4 milligrams per liter calcium to 2 milligrams per liter. It's very important for those organisms, but on a more ecosystem scale, it's much less of a drastic change.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's all relative to the the magnitude of the change broadly but what you said before about the diatoms I think, makes sense like if you were going and it makes sense it, uh, to me in that it's exactly the same in the contemporary record if you go and sample the diatoms in a in a grab sample in a, a algae sample in the lake and measure the 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 water chemistry but don't measure the pH or don't align the changes with the pH you're, you're you fundamentally can do the same thing you can try and connect uh, organism changes to chemical variables that that just don't make any sense from the biology of the organism if that sampling just didn't measure the cladocera or or look at the the zooplankton so it really you do have to understand the indicator group on both sides of the uh of the methodological divide
0: yeah and I think this is a place to point out uh, the work of one of our colleagues that I think really encapsulated this whole You've got to understand the ecology aspect of it. And I'm referring to the work, Cronman work of Emily Stewart, who was a.
1: One of Jane's postdocs. Yep. Jane's only postdoc.
0: Yes. <laughs> and uh, she. Was a PhD student at the same time as you? I, I, she started uh, I after I finished. Started a little think. later. But. I don't think. But anyway, we worked in the same lab, and her work was looking at chronomids in um, Arctic sewage ponds, and oh, uh, I don't think these were the bird ponds. Actually, oh, I think works. the
1: the paper that we're we're talking about is from the bird uh, bird ponds. So I, we've talked about birds a number of times, but the uh, the work at Cape Vera that uh, John Small and Jules uh, and others, including bird biologists like Mark Mallory and and others, uh, have done for a long time, uh, is the center of this paper, I think, and also some work on Turn Island, which is just north of Cornwallis. So north of Resolutes uh, in the Canadian high Arctic, but otherwise, functionally, it, it probably and and they may have gone and done and looked at similar things in the sewage ponds um the idea is that very shallow lakes that are super high in oxygen because they're you know 3 or 4 inches deep you know they're they're like half a meter deep so they're well oxygenated permanently mixed exactly but they are uh, pea soup green because of all the excess nutrients in this case from bird guano human uh, sewage would do similar things.
0: But yeah. So what they found was in these ponds that had basically a rare combination of nutrient-rich and also well-oxygenated waters, um, they were able to find that despite the high nutrient levels, the assemblages that were present there um, were dominated by cold stenotherms. Um, So um, taxa that you would typically more often found in like the bottom of more temperate lakes, um, but that are typical of oligotrophic conditions. And so the whole kind of nutshell synopsis of this work was that they were able to demonstrate that in high concentrations of dissolved oxygen, it wasn't the nutrient enrichment that was having the greatest impact on the uh, chronomid community composition. It was more driven by the oxygen availability. And so this whole idea of, you know, Understanding the ecology of these organisms is really, really important because especially when you're working on a community level and just putting your organisms into a, a model and pumping out your response variable because the conditions you know, can, be pretty, can vary pretty drastically if you don't understand exactly what the organisms are potentially res- responding to in that yeah. specific case.
1: Well, that's it exactly, right? Because in most conditions, cold stenothermic taxa are, are going to be found in cold waters that are deeper, that are oxygenated. Uh, that that makes sense, you know. That that fit with what we know about them. But there are rare cases, and you can't just look at the output and say, "Oh, you know." If, if you didn't know anything about the nutrient conditions of the water, and someone just gave you this sediment core, it would probably smell pretty bad. But otherwise, uh, and you looked at the chronometers, you're like, "Oh." high oxygen, low, uh, oligotrophic conditions when in fact it's a hyper eutrophic cesspool <laughs> that just happens to be, uh, you know, highly oxygenated and, and it's a great paper. I think it's 2013 J O P L paper. And it's not that there weren't any of these taxa they're there. There, you know, there are probably points when these eutrophic taxa, anoxic taxa, uh, are, present um, I think there was some data that there was a, a increase in the abundance so they were fertilizing the lakes and there were more coronamids, as you might imagine but the the biogeography the the distribution of the species based on their conditions are driven by the the prevailing conditions for that organism if that it, you'd looked at the diatoms and there are obviously diatom records from all of these ponds they don't give a Anything about oxygen, they're making oxygen, right? So they would be hyper-eutrophic diatoms responding to the conditions. And and it all depends on what you're looking at.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the take home from all that is the importance of multiproxy analyses to... Like I mean, it's not always possible, and there's lots of single core single um organism studies out there, but the the advantage that multi proxy analyses give you is kind of backing up your interpretation um looking at a different angle or you know is this other organism that is not necessarily responsive to the same variable changing at the same time? If so, can you theorize or er, why that might be? If not, can you theorize why that be? So it becomes a bit more nebulous in many ways um but uh um you know it's very very important because just the point of this kind of example is just to highlight how far removed you are from what is being reconstructed when you're in the lab Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and and the 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 careful application of models is another i think one of the reasons that that they felt so strongly about publishing uh, this paper and, and getting it out there and other than to get the science out uh, is that you, you do have to be careful with using reconstructions for different variables uh, without the context of the local condition.
0: But I think all in all, despite all the difficulties, it still works and it's still a useful tool.
1: Absolutely. So what? So what?
0: doesn't matter. Or I mean, it does matter, but your options are limited. Either is like, just throw your hands up and go, nah, we can't say anything about the history of this lake. Or yes, we can say some things about the history of this lake, but not necessarily everything about the history of this
1: lake. Yeah, like what are you going to do? Go and, and set up camp next to this site and monitor it for the next 20 years in order to be able to really make conclusions about what is going on in this system. That's not tenable for even one site, let alone, I don't know how many cores you can take, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in a, sa- a sampling trip or whatever. So it really does have to be the case for the vast majority of sites.
0: And that's fine. And so I guess, you know, this is, Part of the show where we typically talk about our own experiences, and so in terms of matching the modern record with the paleo record, most of my work uh, of this nature has been done in the Dorset area um, on the what is known as the Dorset A lakes, and you know it it, it can be a bit messy and frustrating, um, and you know, but you got to do what you got to do because in that case they're dealing with there you're dealing with uh, records that go back depending on the lake. I think the earliest one begins in 1975, so 46 years maximum today. Um, and, you know, you have a core that's going back 200 years. You're only dealing with the top quarter of the core in that case. And, um, you know, it, they can line up, but in a lot of the, all of the time – it's just trying to match the general changes because most of these lakes are have not been... They were chosen as basically reference lakes in many cases. Um, so you're not really looking at big, big changes. What else have I done in this yep. kind of stuff? Um, I guess in Wawa it was a little bit easier because the, ch- the changes were massive, even though the re- monitoring record was much... Um, much more spotty but the difference you know wasn't even a change of taxa. it was a change of cladocerans to no cladocerans <laughs> so <laughs> yeah exactly you know, like yes the spotty morning record didn't really m- matter in that case because you know the the ecosystem was annihilated
1: yep Yeah, I have last experience for sure. And the only time that I've ever worked uh, on a project that was, it was not really trying to link them, but it was looking to use both of them was around the diamond mines. And it's, uh, I don't know if I would say it's, it's a, a different example for sure than the Dorset Lakes, because They monitor the diamond mines are not that old. They were only built in you know twenty years ago, less than twenty years ago that they've been operating, Uh, and they didn't monitor before that. They had to monitor for maybe a year or two prior to the mine, and then they've monitored since then. Um, And unlike uh, the the Dorset Lakes, they just basically throw everything they can. Like the the diamond mine pays consulting companies or university students or whatever who work for consultants to monitor absolutely everything throughout the open water period, which is quite short because it's frozen most of the year. And so there is so much data from so many different sites within the lake. It's not one site, it's 30 sites in the one lake that receives water. Uh, So there's just an incredible amount of data, different trophic levels, water chemistry, little bit of sediment data, uh, and then the thing that makes it really hard, and, and I would argue impossible from the, the paleo comparison, is that these are cold Arctic, well, f- mid-Arctic northern uh, lakes, and generally big lakes, so the sediments build up just so, so slowly, so when we were trying to compare the, the paleo section, it was three quarter centimeter intervals or something like that. You know, you're talking about within the top centimeter of the core, which is probably getting a little bit of turbation, uh, in a, in a good, uh, you know, in a good scenario. So that's just an impossible task. Uh, but you can, you know, to look at the other side of it, get that huge context because the bottom of the core was thousands of years ago, probably. So you get a, a a totally different picture.
0: Yeah, and I think that's definitely so. One of the key things here is that modern records are, you know, rarely long enough. Although I'm sure this changes, and I have not looked into it myself, but I imagine on like some of the major studied lakes that the Lake Mendotes and the Lake Tahoes of the world that the the wiggle matching is uh, much easier because you just have longer wiggles to compare as opposed to a really long wiggle and a really short wiggle.
1: What's the lake in in Italy Lago Maggiore, which the freshwater Institute in uh, Verbania is on? We visited it there when we were at uh, Sill for the the trip and so it's one of the Italian kind of large lake lake district uh, lakes, and uh, they, have an, they have a great record going back a very long time. So I'm sure there are lots of examples where you can uh, do more than, than our very short window of, uh, of studying lakes in Canada and the United States. Well, I don't
0: think it's just prevent, uh, Canada and the United States, but I think the same lake that has an institute on its shore that dates back to Victorian times, is at the same time like very unlikely to have a mine set up next to the institute. That's true, true, yeah. And it's like yeah, you
1: know, but not but not like uh, acidification. You know, yeah. I mean, those more regional stressors can can potentially impact those kind of things. So yeah, it really would be very specific to uh, the question.
0: And then just to throw back to your bit of your diamond mine um, comment that we totally left out when we are listing all the reasons why they don't match up is um, the fact that the lakes are frozen most of the year and their sampling program is done in the open water system. And okay. the entire under ice ecology of the lake is not always, but very often neglected in monitoring records. Um, but just is integrated as part of the full annual samples within the uh, sediment records.
1: Yeah there's lots of people I think maybe more recently I would I would say thinking about winter limnology and that you know it's not dead under there when the ice comes on there's lots going on and that is integrated into the sediments a much smaller amount but it is integrated into the sediments in, in some ways uh and and people are starting to do that but it's really hard it's dangerous uh you know that freeze up and and uh melt period is effectively impossible to to sample uh for some part of it anyway. Uh, so the most cursory uh, My hovercraft, my hovercraft isn't, uh, isn't currently running, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that is a, a big part of it.
0: Yeah. When you're just going and sampling from a canoe, you don't have to worry about bringing your auger with you.
1: No. Yeah, or, or moving through the, the ice flows that are, are just breaking up. Like, do I ski? Do I paddle? Do I swim? <laughs> Yeah, so that that is a challenge.
0: And then I guess one thing that in this general topic that you're starting to see more of, or maybe you're not seeing more of it, but maybe it's catching my eye more, is the whole idea of recoring lakes. And, you know, as these morning records do lengthen, um, going back and revisiting, so you have a, you know, 40 year monitoring record, but maybe there's a sediment core analyzed from it, let's say 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and eventually you get accumulation of these type of cores where you are doing like to like through time, which is kind of interesting as well as the science ages I guess.
1: Yeah, JPS talks about this all the time that the the archive of cores in in any lab you go to his being one of the older ones at least in in this type of paleolimnology, this area having one of the bigger archives uh, you know we always talk about not knowing the, the 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 date that any of this sediment is recorded but you do know one you know the day that you took the first core and so you should be able to see some of the changes that have occurred since then, if, if any have, and in our changing world, there probably have been some, uh, when you go back and do that. And there's the nice thing that maybe you don't have to count the whole core. You know, you don't have to count well into the at ba- the past if you're just interested in 20 years of change. So you can look at more lakes if you're doing a master's project or something like that. And there've been a, there've been lots of like efforts to, to recore sites, uh, over time for, for this specific purpose to, to track those kinds of changes, track how, um, different taphonomic processes occur, like chlorophyll a, uh, degradation and and those kinds of things.
0: And there's another, um, cool, but also depressing aspect of those. Um, if you think of like the university cold rooms as an archive of archives and of all the, uh, lake sediments of lakes that no longer exist um that you cannot revisit in terms of like the ones up in the arctic that have completely dried out that uh
1: or drained yep yeah. or been been uh, bulldozed away i mean I arguably it. it doesn't matter for those because they're not liminal you know they're not lakes anymore but uh there is a history in in those sites and their responses up until the point where they stopped being lakes yeah there you go. Cool, 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 cool. So, did we answer any questions? Like, I, we we started out to uh, to to see if we could put a wiggle through all of these different records and line them up, and uh, I think we maybe just <laughs> talked about why you can't do that. Um, but
0: then also that it's but, not necessarily ne- not necessarily necessary, depending yeah. on what you're trying to do.
1: Okay, so uh, so I think that's a good that's a good place to to end our, our discussion. If you have any thoughts on this, if you have done components of, well, obviously there are people out there with much more experience at trying this than, than we have. So if you are one of them, let us know.
0: In all the ways that we have mischaracterized the problem, but I think it's a real one. And I think, uh, but it's one that paleo deal with all the time. And it's just something you have to be mindful of as you conduct your studies and perform your analyses. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Once again, thank you for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you would like to contact us with a question or a comment, uh, please send us an email at coreideaspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com.
1: Or you can contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo, and there's only one A in paleo. Uh,
0: all of our past episodes and most of the corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found on our website at Um But you can just pull that link off of our Twitter bio.
1: Yeah. And if you're so inclined, you can give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts, we would be happy to see those five-star ratings. But to be honest, we don't care all that much. We're just doing this for
0: fun. And that's it for now. Uh, but join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge, as we dive down another conceptual rabbit hole.